Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Matt W., Matthias S., at Uranium Invest R, at Thomas 824-19172, Eric K., Andrew C., Chris T., and Solomon F. George Glazier is back on the show with us. George is Director, President, and CEO of Western Uranium and Vanadium, a U.S.-focused uranium explorer and developer advancing the Sunday Mine Project, among other projects in Utah and Colorado. The company is listed on the Canadian Securities Exchange under the symbol WUC and also US OTC Markets under the symbol WSTRF. George, welcome back, and how are you doing? Oh, real good, thank you, good to be back. Well, George, we got a lot of questions from the audience. I've cut most of my questions out for the sake of time, but uh, let's get to the matters probably most on investors' minds at the moment and a critically important matter for Western. What is the company doing to fully prove compliance with the state of Colorado Reclamation Mining Division, and will the company lose these key assets? Well, of course, as you know, the hearings have been scheduled for April 22nd and 23rd to consider the status of the permits on the, the five mines at the Sunday Complex. And we truly and clearly believe and have evidence that they are active mines, uh, at least four uh, probably all five of them will be declared active at that hearing by the board. Uh, if you take a look at the first notice, uh, they, they, on their own uh, motion, decided to delay it for a month. And part of that, if you read their notice, they want to have a pre-conference uh, hearing. And the reason for that, obviously, we've lined up expert witnesses. We've lined up you know, our council to be there. And so this is a, a serious thing, and they've got to take it seriously. But we think... You know, the facts of the situation and the current regulations in place uh, clearly indicate that the Sunday Mine Complex is active, especially because of what has been done uh, clear back in 2013, as well as what we recently did this summer. If you take a look at our press releases, we opened the mine, we did development in the mine, we actually mined ore, we stockpiled it in the mine. Uh, and if you take a look at the various, uh, you know, correspondence with the division, the reason we didn't take the ore out is there was a couple of things we had to comply with, which uh, we're finishing up uh, that. Actually, uh, the ore pads were the last thing, and those ore pads will be completed, and the final engineering report will be done tomorrow. So we're on track uh, for that hearing uh, in April uh, to show the, the board that we are an active mine, and it should be determined to be an active status. And is it your position, George, that compliance has been met for all of the mining operations, or is it just for some specific work done at certain parts of the Sunday Mine Complex? Can you give us a little more detail on well, when those compliances well, it, were done? It was done. We started mine this, this last summer. We opened four of the five mines, the portals of four or five, and we were in four or five of the mines actively developing and mining. So those are the four or five mines. That, you know, it's no you know, it's public information, we were going to open the topaz, which was the fifth of them. And we went, obviously, to the BLM, and we gave notice we were going to open. And the BLM came back and says, we're not sure what kind of plan of operation we have on file for the topaz. Even though the topaz was operated in 2009 under some kind of plan with the BLM. Well, they, after, oh, probably a month of searching their files, couldn't find a plan of operation for the topaz. So they advised us not to do anything except, you know, nominal activities in the mine. So we did not open the topaz under the order of the BLM. Uh, so there's there's a good cause there that says we could have opened it and done exactly the same thing except for the BLM, you know, advised us at the last minute. And we were relying on the fact that there was a, a plan of operations in place when they operated in 2009 and 10. Uh, so again, that's that's one that physically was not open, but but certainly we could argue uh, that it was uh, would have been active except for that order. Now whether that lies, I don't know. But the other four were clearly open, 
And the topaz is, of all the, the five mines, the topaz is the least important, you know, for early production. Uh, we can certainly, we're working on a new plan of operation. We started that almost immediately after the BLM advised us that they had no current plan of operation. So our consultants are working on that now, and that should be submitted shortly to the BLM. So that that will be satisfied. And again, the status of that mine is, you know, maybe the only one that wasn't physically active this last summer. The others clearly were. But we did other activities there. We've done other things at the Topaz, which, you know, no doubt when they finally do this new rulemaking, you know, the state of Colorado to determine what constitutes, you know, activity in a mine, uh, that's going to include more than just ore mining. But we mined ore. So, you know, even if it's limited to that, which we don't think that would be the case. And I, everybody that we've talked to indicates that there's got to be a broader definition of what an active mine is because you could be developing uh, and it could take you, big mines, it could take you 10 years or more to develop a mine before you're even ready to produce ore. So we think the standards, which will be set probably not, uh, maybe a year from now, will include a number of activities which basically constitute active mining. And George, I'm assuming that some of the opening activities that have gone on uh, starting last year in 2019, that was done in anticipation of this issue coming up where the agency has been claiming that since 2009, there's been no activity. So can you speak to your relationship with the agency? Well, clearly, clearly what happened is, you know, our company also owns the Van 4, which was a permitted mine and then got into uh, temporary cessation. And we you know, bought that mine from Energy Fuels uh, in 2014. And there was the first of one five-year temporary cessation order in place. And so that, that expired. And in 2018, we applied for and were granted a second temporary cessation by the, by the board. Well, that's the one that led to this challenge. And of course, the anti-mining people challenged that decision of the board they went to district court in Colorado, and the district court sided with the, the commission and said, yes, that's right. You've got the regulations that say you can have two five-year temporary cessations, and that's what you did. So you followed your regulations. The mine is still uh, considered in that status. Well, they took that to the appellate court in Colorado, and the court of appeals found a little bit differently. They said, well, it, it shouldn't be the, the just the issue of the temporary cessation it should be the physical activity that takes place if there's no physical activity and they didn't define that but if there's no physical activity in 10 years then the mine should be declared inactive and go into reclamation so with that decision of the appellate court we decided oh okay we better we will have activity at the sunday mine we won't rely on this uh two five-year temporary cessation arrangements and, and so that was part of the reason, not the only reason we went into production last summer. We went into production also because we had a demand for the ore. And so we did it for two reasons. We would have done it with or without that court order, but that, that you know, certainly was one of the things. And I think there are other mines in Colorado that are facing the same situation, and I don't know what they're doing uh, because there's been a number of mines that haven't had physical activity for the 10-year period that are in their temporary cessation. And, and I don't know what will happen to those. I suppose they're all going to have to go in and, and defend the status and, and uh, tell the, the state what they've done or what they haven't done uh, to maintain or not maintain that status. But I think we're, we're clearly the, the front runner in this because we clearly have done things. And the other mines, I'm not, I'm not sure what they'll do. I've, I've heard rumors that some of them are going to concede they haven't done anything for 10 years and go into reclamation. Some of them probably will, will basically say they have had activity that constitute active mining. But that's what Sorry. led partially okay. to us doing it. But we also, because of the high price of vanadium, we're going to open the mine anyway. We had planned to open the mine. We had done the things to open the mine way before that decision came out. Uh, okay. So we, before the decision came out by the court, we were already planning to open in the summer. And as, okay. as you recall, if you go back and look at the requirements to open the mine, one of them was to cover the low-grade stockpile, which, you know, we did. You know, that was not a permit requirement, but the division decided that would be something that they would like us to do, and they requested us to do that before we opened mine. So we did that. 
And if you'll recall, the press releases shows that we did that. We got that approved by the state, and then we opened the mine. But we could have with we could have opened the mine, you know, our own without doing that. But we honored the request of the state to cover that low-grade stockpile, and then we opened the mine. And with the current rules, and with the reopening of the four mines at Sunday last year that was within the 10-year time frame that the agency continues to hang its hat on. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And George, speak to the relationship with the agency that you have, and is it sufficient to get this matter resolved for both the benefit of the agency and the company? Well, our, our relationship, excuse me, with the agency are, are good. You know, we've, we've, you know, they've complimented us on what we've done out there. Uh, they inspected the horse pads while they were under construction. They said, we're doing a great job. Every every time they inspect, everything is just right, and the minor things that are not, we fix. So we've got very good relationships with the agencies, you know, at the staff level. Uh, of course, we other than the Van Four, we have not been in front of the the board, you know, for any requests or for any determinations. And and that one, when we went in front of, with the Van Four, obviously, uh, the board ruled, you know, on their regulations. So I think our you know, our relations are fine, but we don't rely on the relationship. We rely on the law and the facts, and that's why we'll win. Very well. And with the Van Four, Mike, can you speak a little bit more to that? If the agency pushes for reclamation of Van Four, how will the company deal with that, and can it be avoided? Well, I, I don't think so. I think the court has ordered uh, the the agency or the, the board to basically revoke the operating permit and put it into reclamation status. And we have not had a formal notice yet of that, but we understand that that probably will be coming in the next, you know, 30 to 90 days. When we get that formal notice, we will put the mine into reclamation. Now there's already a reclamation plan and there's a bond up for the reclamation. So, you know, I don't think there's any reason to try to fight it. You know, they decided, the, the board, which was their call, not to appeal the Court of Appeals decision to the Colorado Supreme Court. So as far as we're concerned, that is now where the board is, and we're going to probably start reclaiming the Van 4 in the next year. And over a period of time, the Van 4 will be reclaimed. Now, you can start to re-permit, interestingly. You can go in and start re-permitting any time if we wanted to. But the Van 4 being a lower priority, uh, we probably wouldn't do that. And the reclamation cost is not that great and probably take, if we really went at it quickly, we could reclaim it fairly quickly. But, you know, if you take a look at the Van 4, there's buildings out there, there's a head frame and a hoist and that, and that's not difficult to reclaim. And there's not a lot of surface disturbance at the at the Van 4. So take a look, I mean, the bond is $75,000. So you can see that that more than covers the reclamation cost of the van four. And then when it's reclaimed, we get our bond back. So there'll be cash out of our pocket to start with. But then when the bond, when the reclamation is done, we get our bond back. And of course, if you know how the state bonds, they bond for outside contractors to do the work, uh, plus, you know, additional amounts so that they're well covered. So, you know, the 75000 bond is, is more well beyond what it'll cost for us to do the reclamation. Okay. And can you speak for how long do you have to do that reclamation work? Can you just uh, speak to if it's a couple of years you have to do well, that? Or what's, yeah, what's I, I would guess the board's going to say a couple of years, you know, because what happens is, you know, they're going to come in and say, okay, you've got a couple of years to do the reclamation, start it, do the, the first things, but do it over a reasonable period of time. You know, you, you want to be doing certain things when the weather's right. The summer's a good time to do some of it. So, you know, in the wintertime when the ground is wet uh, and snows there, you probably don't want to do a lot of surface work. So, yeah, they'll give us an adequate amount of time, I'm sure. Okay. And what is the plan if permits get pulled at Sunday? How long and at what cost would it take to get a successful outcome on the issues, George? Well, that, that's an interesting question. You know, of course, we can always do the same thing. You know, we can go in and challenge the decision of the board in the court. If, you know, I mean, that's that's... The remedy you have. So, I mean, the board, if they ruled against us, we've got the right to go to court and have the court determine. You know, that's a long process, does cost money, or we can start re-permitting. Interestingly enough, the BLM hasn't revoked the plan of operations for those four mines. <laughs> so, typically, permitting mines in Colorado, you go through the two-stage or two-step process, the state and the BLM, since we're on BLM land. 
Right. Well, the BLM is always a longer process because of the EEA and things like that. So to re-permit these mines where there's already disturbance there and there's already all the background data, we've got all the monitor wells in, all of that is already there. It's not something you have to do. It wouldn't, you know, I can't tell you how long it would take or how much money, but it's not going to be, even if we re-permitted the, the, the mines, it wouldn't be a major undertaking, either cost or time. We would be ready to produce, you know, again, the market doesn't justify a lot of production right now. You know, uranium is still at $25. And I suppose one of your questions may be, uh, what do we think about the government plan to buy uranium? Well, uh, that could drive prices up to where the Sunday mine would be a logical candidate to be producing into that, that whatever it is the government's going to do. Yes, and I want to ask you about that in a moment. It's coming right up. Can you speak to how much the uranium, how much uranium material and vanadium material has been stockpiled in total at this point, George, at the Sunday complex uh, since recent activity? Well, uh, yeah. it's stockpiled in in the mines. There were, there were, it's a good quantity of it, and it's stockpiled in the mines. And we're, we're limited by how much space we have in the mines because of the order of the division, not to take it out till we had ore pads. So, I mean, it's not thousands of tons because there's not room for thousands of tons in there, but it's a significant quantity. And we didn't measure it in tonnage. You know, it's, it's, it's the board trucks or the, you know, the mine trucks brought it out and put it in places where we could store it and, you know, until we opened the portals. But it's a significant quantity. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly a significant quantity, but I don't have the exact quantity is because we didn't quantify it. Okay. Number of trucks dumped. So it, it's a significant amount. It's not thousands of tons because there's no room to store thousands of tons in the mines. Okay. And now is it is it is it uh, sufficient for the agency? And what is the status of the ore pads at this point? Are they are they almost complete? Now the ore pads are complete. The inspection uh, by our engineer and the, and the independent certification that they were built as uh, approved happens tomorrow. And we will support the re, uh, report that to the division within a couple of days for their final sign-off on it. So the ore pads are complete uh, okay. as of now. So they're they're done. But you know, again, we'll wait. The division has uh, told us, well, don't don't open the mines until they take a look and and put their stamp of approval on the ore pads. And they may very well come out and look at them again. They were out there once, and that's fine. So how long that takes is just probably a matter of, of days or weeks. It's not a a lengthy process uh, so and then we can open the mines and then take the ore or whatever we want put it on the ore pads but we don't need that we don't think that constitutes activity anything what we already did is active whether you put it on the ore pads but we do have some samples we want to ship you know to various places of that ore so it would be good to get some of it out of the mines and that was the whole purpose of it as we announced last summer we wanted to ship samples of this to a number of processing plants to see how it processed. Uh, and again, right. we weren't able to do it because we couldn't take it out of the mine. The Colorado Reclamation Mining representatives, have they been underground at the Sunday Complex? No, they came out and inspected the mine when we were operating, but they did not want to go underground. And now the portals are closed, of course, when you when you close it. When we closed it after, you know, we couldn't take the ore out. So, I mean, we can reopen them, but there's... You know, they're closed and it's just can't open the gate and get in it. There's rock in front of the portals, quite a bit of it. Take a front end loader and, you know, some work to get it out. But they didn't go into the mines and, you know, but I'll tell you who went in there. Emshaw went in there. Well, that's what well, uh, well, people were, in, were inspecting us, you know, periodically. And, and they do a complete inspection. Of course, they're the safety division of the federal government, and they went into the mines to make sure we were complying with all the safety requirements. So, I mean, you know, that maybe the state didn't need to go in. They looked at what we were doing on the surface, but for whatever reason, they didn't go in, and neither did the BLM. But yeah, mine, well, I mean, the MSHA people did. Well, it's good that MSHA did go in there as a federal agency, but certainly uh, you would think that uh, it would be beneficial for those folks at the state to drag their butt down there and, and take a look if they can and see that there has been something done. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, you know, again, I'm not speaking for what the state should be doing, but again, you know, uh, they're, they're more interested, obviously, that we're complying with the permit. Uh, the safety issues are left to MSHA, you know, right. underground especially. 
And so the state inspects the mine to make sure that we're in compliance with all the permit requirements. And most of those, you know, requirements relate to surface activity. I mean, right. and, and, you know, again, going underground, you know, they're not looking for safety. They're looking for compliance with the permit. And sure. it, it doesn't talk about how we mine or things like that. It talks about some of the equipment we're using. Well, they say they saw the equipment. They could come out and they were, you know, every morning it was sitting on the surface before the miners went in there with the equipment. So, I mean, yeah. it, you know, some of the equipment, some of it was left in the mine. But, you know, I, I don't know if there was a need for them to go in. But, uh, again, that's, that was their decision. We've been happy to take them in. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I understand about this, who handles the safety in the mines and so forth. But just for the purposes of verifying that, yes, there is activity, uh, that would be a mm-hmm. good start. But let's move over to news coming out of D.C. So assuming the $150 million per year budget for uranium is approved in D.C., what would be the Western timeline to produce uranium, assuming the company was awarded a contract coming out of this deal? Well, obviously, we can we can turn that mine on in a matter of days and be producing ore. Now we could be putting ore out on the pad and shipping ore within two weeks. Now we do have to ventilate the mine. Uh, you know, we opened all the ventilation shafts and ventilated it before we started in the summer, and that, that takes a you know probably about two weeks before you access most of the mine simply to you know ventilate it. But within two or three weeks, we could be producing ore in that mine. So it, it's not, it, it, and it's all the capitals put in, and, and you know, the development work that was done this summer allows us to produce ore. We're re- we're ready to produce ore. Any requirement of the federal government or the utilities or anybody else. Let's just assume, and I haven't seen the procurement process how this is going to come out, but I assume it'll be based on low bid, maybe some technical merits. But uh, so we'll see how this solicitation comes out and from what actual you know agency this comes out of maybe you can speak to the details on how these contracts or these solicitations are going to come out for bid and then well, also per, go ahead yeah first of all it's a proposed budget it's not in place and it's for fiscal year you know 21 which starts in October of 20 right. and so i don't think any agency is going to do anything until there's a budget approved by congress for this <laughs> You know, people say, oh, this is good, but, you know, it's only a proposed budget. And we know what happens with proposed budgets. It goes back and forth between the administration and Congress. And finally, many times they operate without a budget, but finally, generally, they approve a budget. And then the agencies, you know, go about, you know, uh, spending the budgeted amounts. So I don't think anything's going to happen. Nobody's even going to design a program until there's an approved budget. Or, right. or Trump announced there isn't going to be approved budget, you know, and that's not going to be until after October. Uh, so he announces, okay, I'm going ahead under, you know, executive order or whatever they do, and tells one of the departments, it probably be the Department of Energy, to line up the, the, the buying program. And as with government contracting, they always go out for bids. I mean, that's, that's typically what they do uh, and right. how they qualify those things. They'll have to decide what their criteria are. But I suspect, you know, if, if anybody's expecting any Iranian to be shipped to the federal government in the next year, I think they're just, it's wishful thinking. It won't happen because of the process. So here we are about a year from now. Maybe they'll be ready to go out and, and, and maybe award some bids. Well, and then people will start producing, say, a year from now in you know, mid-2021. So, again, right. they're going to go for bids, and they're probably going to buy the cheapest. And, you know, if you listen to all of the other producers in the United States, you know, they're all, they all have about the same uh, price requirement to go into production. And with $150 million, nobody's going to start any new mines. It's, it's not enough money. What does it buy? Maybe 2 million pounds? Uh, you know, I, I listened to Mark Chalmers, which you interview and others interview him, and he's basically saying the U.S. needs 60 plus dollars. So it's easy to calculate if you've got 150 million dollars, how many pounds does that buy at 60 dollars plus? Only a little over 2 million pounds. And there's not going to be any new mines started on a one year program. Now, the proposed budget says for 10 years, but that doesn't mean there's going to be a contract for 10 years. It's going to be a one year deal. This is not a long-term solution to the uranium industry. Now, the long-term yeah. solution is the world prices go up. Yeah, you know, no, I, I you talk, you listen to Cameco, who's a great producer, 
And they basically say, yeah, the prices have to go up. There's not going to be worldwide production until the prices go up. And what level? Who knows? But that's the solution ultimately. And if the U.S. industry can survive for a few years on government purchases, that's great. Uh, and, right. and we're right. certainly for the government doing something. But this this is not the panacea that the 232 was looking to, the, you know, the petition that Energy Fuels and UR Energy filed. They were looking for, you know, quotas, a certain amount to be purchased by U.S. utilities over a period of time. And, and that hasn't happened. I'm not saying it couldn't be revisited or, or Trump could do something. You know, I don't know. Of course, the working committee set up as a number of recommendations into Trump and nobody knows. We haven't seen those yet. So, yeah. again, this might not be the only thing the president does, but it might be the start. So everybody's right. still waning to say, to see, okay, what does happen with the U.S. industry? And it's, it's right now it's not certain. So the best thing to do is, like everybody is holding and keeping your costs as low as you can, and we're one of the lowest costs for the number of uh, reserves we have of any company in the U.S. You can take a look at our cash burn you know, versus right. the other companies that have projects that could you know, be put in production fairly quickly. Yeah, we haven't had Chalmers on the show, I think, for almost a year now. And one of the things that, that I just have, have we've pointed out before in our newsletter and also on Twitter, that you have a process to go through first of getting the budget approved, which, by the way, this is an election year. That may not even happen. And then for anything beyond this election year, depending on who gets elected, this whole 10-year plan may get completely reversed and destroyed. And so there's there's a lot of obstacles, including the solicitation process. And then, of course, delivery timeframes, how much um, and who gets awarded technical capability, delivery time windows and all this other stuff. So, yeah, 2020, there's there ain't shit happening. Yeah, you've got it right on, I believe. I think that's the case. And, and this is a sideshow. George, as you spoke, this is a sideshow. This is not the solution to the big market. And, and obviously, we know that the long term contracting from utilities is the big show, the big event that's coming down the pipe and not necessarily this you know, nuclear fuel group, which, by the way, so far has been a bit of a clown show going through from 232 to this nuclear fuel working group. I mean, it's just been a bunch of a noise, uh, really, mm -hmm. with with no definitive direction, in my opinion. Well, let's let's move over to uh, production capital needs. Let's let's just make an assumption, George, that we're in 2021. And at this point, there are some contracts coming out. And uh, let's just make some assumptions that uranium price is doing better. How much would the company need to go into uranium and vanadium production? And what would be the key driver, George, for the company to make that decision, assuming that there are no mining permit issues? Clearly, you know, the price of uranium, vanadium are a combination of them and is a key. If you've got vanadium going up uh, substantially again, then the uranium price may not, not need to. So it's a combination since we produce both in the same rock. Uh, so, again, it's a combination of the two commodities reaching a level that we can make money. And so the capital cost is very limited because basically we opened the mine. And, and you can see we're going to come out with our financials, but we have come out with our quarterly financials and reported what we spent in there. But the mine is ready to go. And we did it with a contractor. We hired a contractor who brought his own equipment. So we didn't have to. Uh, you know, gear up and buy a lot of mining equipment. That keeps your capital down. We have a little bit of mining equipment that the company owns, but not enough to operate four mines. So the contractor brought all his equipment. And so that's what we would probably do is we'd probably use a contractor who already has his equipment. And so we don't have the capital cost of equipment because there's virtually no capital to open the mine because it's all there and ready to go. So the capital cost is insignificant if we use a contractor. Now, a contractor charges you more than you can do it for yourself because he's got to recover the cost of his equipment. But in the short term, that's a better way to do it because you don't have the big outlay of capital up front. And especially if there's only going to be a one-time purchase of, you know, 2 million pounds of uranium, we don't want to go out and buy a whole lot of equipment and have it sit idle for the next number of years until the world price goes up. So. You know, our capital cost is almost zero if we use a, a contractor. Now, again, to, to stockpile and get the ore ready and, and get enough to process at a plant, you know, we've got inventory cost. Uh, it depends on what kind of arrangement we have with a processing plant, whether it's simply they're going to buy the ore from us uh, 
or whether they process under a milling agreement. So that hasn't been determined yet, but you know, there are several ways to turn it into final product uh, to sell to the government because I, the government could also do a program to buy ore, which is not a bad idea. And that was one of the suggestions to the working group. I don't know if you knew that, but we and some other independent companies submitted some recommendations saying the government doesn't need yellow cake. Why don't you just stockpile ore, uranium ore? Because it'd be a lot cheaper. And, and milling ore, once you have it mined, is, is easy. Okay. And even building a new mill, if the government dictated and decided they needed uranium quickly, they could build a new mill within a year. Uh, so milling of the, the ore is not the big issue. It's basically producing it. So if you shut down the mines, that's where the mostly capital cost is. So we suggested, and, and again, whether this makes it in the recommendation, was simply the government could stockpile ore. And they used to do that, used to buy ore. Uh, and you could have a uranium ore stockpile to satisfy the strategic need of the U.S. And, uh, and you'd buy a lot more because you don't have the ultimate cost right now of, of milling it. And the government doesn't need yellow cake right now. I think the reports that came out said the Department of Energy has enough, you know, processed uranium to last for a while. Uh, so again, you know, we think that there's other things rather than buying processed ore, but we don't know what the buying program, they may have a combination and who knows what this is going to be. They may come out with half of that uh, 150 million just to buy ore from independence and stockpiling. It'd be a lot, they could buy a lot more with that because the cost of typically, you know, you look at the cost in the past, the mine's been about half the cost and the milling about half the cost. So you can buy twice as much in the form of ore as you could in finished product and then right. have it ready if and when you need it. Yeah, understood. Let's just talk briefly about prices for a moment for uranium and vanadium. Let's assume that you've got 30 and 10 per pound respectively. Let's just say the market price for uranium is 30 and the market price for vanadium is 10. Okay. At that at that price point, George, would you guys be plenty comfortable to get into some kind of initial production start? And what would that production start be in terms of quantity? Well, I, you know, I, I think you're getting close to those values, definitely, because when you translate that into the tons, the value per ton of rock that you mine, all, all mining costs are in tons. It doesn't make any difference. There's one pound of uranium or 10 pounds of uranium. The costs are all in tons. Right. So we look at it as what it costs, what the value is per ton of rock that we produce for the two products. And so, you know, I, 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 one of the things that I don't want to do, we haven't had an independent analysis done of the cost. And so under SEC rules and Canadian security rules, we're not supposed to report our cost figures, okay, because they have not been confirmed by independence. So I can't tell you, you know, yes, at those numbers we could go into production because that's somewhat violating SEC and Canadian security law. And I, I won't do that. I can't do that. But what I've told people in the past, you can apply the, you know, you know what our grades are. You know, we've reported the grades. How much is in the ton of, of, of ore, uranium and vanadium? So you can get a value per ton. And then you can go and talk to look at, you know, what are, what are typical hard rock underground mines in the United States? What's the cost of mining? And then you can do your own economics and, and decide if those numbers work. And it's yeah. not very hard to do. <laughs> there are a number of people that have done it and, and let them do it and put their opinion out because they're not restricted from what their opinion is. But I am uh, restricted from telling you what our costs are because we have not done that independent cost. And we don't need to do it, quite frankly. Yes, and I, my, my suspicion is is uh, that the price will be there at some point. So can, can you speak to maybe what you guys would look for for initial production in terms of amount of tons you know, per day you guys would be looking at operational-wise? Um, oh, I, I think I think the, the five mine complex easily could produce, you know, six, seven hundred tons a day. You know, look at the production that they had back in 2009 and 10. Uh, it, that would be a fairly easy production number uh, and just operating one single shift a day. And if you want to operate two or three shifts a day, you could increase that. Uh, the mines have you know, a large capacity. It just depends on how much the demand is. Uh, so again, I you know I'm comfortable with five to seven hundred tons a day, and that's a significant quantity of ore. At five okay. pounds of uranium per ton of rock, uh, you know, operating even just five days a week, you can calculate how many 
pounds we can produce of uranium, but the, the mines are certainly capable of that level of production based on what they've done in the past. Okay, so let's move on. Let's go over to processing. What is the status of the progressing the ablation technology that the company has? What efforts are being done there, George, and how is the application process going to get that as a potential route for you guys to process? Well, obviously, the decision was made by the state of Colorado to determine that ablation is a, a milling process, not mining. We disagree with that. And they primarily relied on the opinion of the NRC, a staff member of the NRC, without really considering history and legal precedent and everything, came up with that recommendation. So we went directly to the commission of the NRC for a determination. And that's in process right now. Now, of course, anything through the NRC takes time. But we submitted, and it's you know you can get online, they, you know public guys. We we submitted our arguments, you know the technical aspects of this and the legal arguments why ablation, uh, or now we call it kinetic uh, separation, should be considered a mining process, not a milling process. So that's in front of the NRC, and how long it takes to rule on that, you know it's anybody's guess. So until that's done, obviously, you know in Colorado. Uh, we won't use the process, but it doesn't mean that we couldn't go to another state and ask that state, okay, what do you think? Is this because the NRC has given an advisory opinion, but not a, they haven't you know, told the states for sure what this is in our opinion. So uh, another state, Utah, Wyoming, uh, could say, hey, you know, we think it's a mining process. We think it's controlled under the mining regulations. But you know, obviously, there's no reason to do that because the market isn't there yet, you know, to use it. And we're we're going through the process with the NRC. And of course, you know, we could even concede and say, okay, we don't think it takes a full milling license. It only takes a source material license. But to make the argument, we think it's mining. We're not in in a position right now to apply for any kind of radioactivity license through, you know, that division of the state or the NRC. So that it, it, it's an ongoing process, and I can't say when it'll be determined. But, you know, okay. it's not crucial. If, if uranium and vanadium prices go to a certain level, we don't need to use that process. It, it reduces the cost, clearly, and it reduces the environmental impact because it reduces uh, the quantity you have to send to a mill and put into the tailings substantially. And so, I mean, all the conventional mines you know, in the U.S. ought to be looking at this, and so should the, you know, the environmentalists say, this is good. If you're going to mine uranium, you ought to use this process because it reduces that, that you know, the toxic waste or the toxic tailings is the worst part of uranium uh, production. It's coming out of the mill. And that's why they have these highly engineered uh, telling and sales to put the, the waste material in. And if you can reduce that quantity of waste by 80 or 90%, that's what you should be doing. Right. But, you know, the antis are not interested in, in, in the best way to do it. They're interested in not doing it all. Don't produce anything, not just uranium. They don't want any kind of mining. They right. shut down gold mining, silver mining, all kinds of mining. You know, they're just they're against everything. <laughs> you know, virtually every industrial process. They don't want anything to happen. I don't know where we get these, these materials if, if they have their way, but. You know, it's, that's if you look at their agenda, it's not just it's not just uranium mining, and it's not just you know mining in general. It's everything. Yeah, clearly misinformed, and to convince regulators about a process that happens on site, whether or not you're using ablation technology, or whether or not you have a screen plant on site and you're simply screening materials, that just to me is is uh, yeah, you've got a bit of a clown show at the regulator level, and uh, it's it's a sad state of affairs. Let's leave it at that. Right. Now, the ablation technology, George, you guys have a multi-million dollar valuation stated on the balance sheet with no change to that value going back a couple of years. Can you give me your thoughts right. on that valuation, and is it representative to actual value? Yeah, the actual value, if, if we put this into production and start licensing to others, could be much, much higher. So we're carrying the value that we basically when we acquired the, the technology. So it's, it's carried pretty much at cost. Uh, if that's how it, you know, the accountants and auditors do it. And they've looked at it each year and say, well, I guess that's still valid because nobody has said it's not worth that. Uh, if, if you could not use it for some reason in the United States, 
then maybe the value would go down. But it still could be used around the world. Could be a technology we could sell. Uh, but again, or sell or license. So you know what we carry on the books is 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 you know nobody's come in and said okay what is the ultimate value of this? The auditors look at it every year in their impairment calculation and. They've been satisfied that we're carrying a proper value, but you know, it's simply a number on the books, and that related to what we bought and how we valued the acquisition of Black Range Minerals when we acquired them. Okay, and so we've talked about ablation as a potential method for processing. Can you talk about, uh, are there any ongoing discussions related to some type of toll milling agreement with energy fuels elsewhere? Are you looking at another plan besides ablation? What's your thoughts? Oh, oh, we're looking always at, at alternates where to, to process. And sure, discussions with energy fields are no active discussions right now. I wouldn't say there are, but it could be. Probably see Mark up in uh, uh, Toronto in, in a week and, and basically bring it up. You know, we talk to them off and on about what their plans are. We listen to what they say their plans are. In one of their recent interviews, Mark did say, you know, in the past, the mill has bought substantial quantities and toll milled for others. That's one way to fill up the mill. And of course, they don't probably have the capacity in their existing developed and licensed mines to, to anywhere come near filling up that mill. And so they would be far better off under some arrangement with other independents of taking ore, whether it's just buying the ore outright or whether it's milling, they would be better to use the capacity of the mill and make some money than sit there and use a very small part of the mill for their own ore and and just take a look at you know that's a big mill it takes a lot of ore I was with the company that built that mill when we started that mill back in 1980 we had almost a million tons of ore stockpiled at that mill and that mill if you run it at the, the stated capacity it takes 700,000 tons of ore a year that's a lot of ore <laughs> so again you know, I, I think that energy fuels will be a logical candidate to take ore from not only Western, but from other independents to basically enhance the value of that mill to them and enhance their financial position. You know, sure, it enhances the financial position of the other companies, but there's nothing wrong with that because it probably more substantially enhances their value to use that mill and create cash flows. Because if you don't, if you don't use it, it's just a drag on the on the company. It's a drag on energy fuels. It costs a lot to hold that mill together. You can take a look at their their costs and their balance sheets. It's an expensive holding process. So put it into production and put it into production with everything you can. And again, if there's if there's a big purchase by the government of 150 million energy fuels, likely could get a big chunk of that, but they couldn't represent they could do it quickly out of their own mind. It's just not there, you know. And, and they will admit that. I mean, they go through, you can take a look at their published information, when different mines can come on, if they're permitted, if they're developed, how much money it takes. Uh, you know, it's, it, that's not, there's not secrets in this because we're public companies and they are a public companies. So, you know, I think they will certainly, you know, consider taking ore from Western as well as any other independents and delivery fairly quickly. Uh, you know, in, in, in some quantities, they don't want to buy two or three tons at a time. That's, that's not worth their while. But companies right. that can produce a significant quantity of ore would probably be attractive to them. Well, we continue to, to promote that both companies, if possible, and all companies in the U.S. sector continue to find ways to work together that's beneficial to both shareholders of both companies to where both companies are benefiting. That's That's our position on the issue. Well, George, let's speak to capital needs for 2020. Will the company be looking to do financings in 2020? And can you just speak to what you guys would expect to be spending capital-wise this year? Well, you know, our our normal burn rate of maintaining, you know, and, and I think we will open the mines and spend more. And it depends on whether we anticipate there's going to be this program going forward. We may want to open the mines and, and start producing some more ore and put it out on the ore pads or maybe even ship some somewhere. So, again, we've got enough cash that we wouldn't have to. Uh, raise anything in 2020. If you look at our balance sheets, we've got enough cash to keep going, doing what we're doing right now. So again, anticipating obviously what we want to do uh, with these mines may may require additional cash. So we have no plans right now to raise additional capital, but that could change, and it could change based on what we perceive and how the market is perceived. 
you know, obviously, uh, if if the uranium price seems to be going up, or if there seems the government's going to do a program, then everybody's got to get ready, and you want to basically be in a position to produce as much as you can as soon as you can into that program. And so, spending a little bit and anticipating that's probably a good idea. And we haven't made that decision, but I, you know, I'm constantly looking at the market, looking at the demands and things like, and our share price, obviously. You know, as our share price, you know, increases, it, it's more likely we should do a capital raise. As you take a look, a number of the uranium companies have already done capital raises. I see Energy Fuels did one, just did like, what, $16 million? And, you know, there's been a number of them, Laramide and, you know, of the U.S. companies have taken advantage uh, of raising a little bit of capital now. Uh, and so, you know, we won't raise significant amounts beyond what we need, but we might raise some. But again, we have not decided that. And George, can you update us on the cash position today and also current shares outstanding and the current major shareholders? Uh, we've got about 30 million shares outstanding. Uh, I'm the major shareholder. Uh, widespread through the other shareholders. I don't think anybody's got more than two or three percent other than myself. Cash position, we have about a million and a half dollars. Take a look at that. Uh, we're working on the financials right now. We raised, we got a little bit more than that, but you know, say a million and a half to two million in the bank. We raised three and a half million last spring. And we spent you know a good chunk of that on the mining effort. You can take a look at our financials that we put out for the quarter. But we spent and, and are spending, you know, it's no secret. These ore pads are costing us a, a bit over $100,000, but it's, uh, it's expenditure well made. So, again, you know, it's money spent on the mining primarily and holding the properties together. Our administrative expenses are not, I mean, we've got two and a half employees. You know, for a company that holds uh, mines like we do and resources, that's almost unheard of. You know, I'm an employee, our CFO is an employee, and we've got a part-time operations guy, and that's it. And to the other extent, we use contractors, which you can turn on and off as you need them. So, you know, I know companies like Energy Fuels have to have a lot bigger staff because they, they have the mill, they have a lot of other things, they've got overheads in Denver and everything else. We don't have any of that stuff. <laughs> and we don't have an office anywhere. We all work out of our own homes or, you know, home offices. We don't need an office. Uh, that keeps the cost down. So the key is during this period of low prices, you've got to minimize what it costs to hold your company together. And I think everybody tries to do that. And we right. do the same thing. So, I mean, that's yep. what investors are saying. Hey, don't spend the money when there's no, no need to. But there may be there may be some encouraging news that comes out, you know, in the near future that says, hey, you got to spend more. And to spend right. more, we would have to raise some. Yeah, and I think you pointed out some key advantages that Western has over some U.S. peer companies. Uh, you, you just pointed out a number of items. I want to move on to another question. Merger acquisition considerations, George. Is there anything you can share with us here? And is the company considering any deals for acquisitions or mergers at this point? We're, we're always looking. We're always looking at, at assets out there. In fact, that's one of the things that I do quite a bit, and we get proposals I look at a lot of, of, of especially for acquisitions of, of small things, and I talk to a lot of our peer companies, you know, on a on a, a regular basis to see if there's some benefit to the shareholders of, of the companies to do a merger or an acquisition. I'm for any of that that benefits the shareholders, you know, and I I do think that there should be some more acquisitions or mergers uh, in this space because we've got a number of smaller companies in the U.S. And to be strong, basically, you need uh, size. And it makes sense. You know, over the years, Energy Fuels has done a number of acquisitions, and I think it's made it a stronger company. You know, some of the others have been a little reluctant to do it because of the low valuations. But I, I see that maybe changing. Maybe this is the year where you get some of these mergers and acquisitions that make a lot of sense for the shareholders. And I'm all for that. I'd be happy to merge or, you know, acquire if the right deal came along with anybody. You know, there's no reason. I'm, I'm this, you know, the biggest shareholder. I'm in it for shareholder value. <laughs> I've been in, in and out of this industry for a long time, and the whole key is to make money for the shareholders. And, you know, again, how we do that, you know, if it's if it's an acquisition of Western, I'd support it in a minute. At the right valuation, if the shareholders agree to it, you know, it's great. I think that would be the way to go. 
So I, I look for some activity in 2020, uh, whether it's we're involved in it or whether it's other companies, but I think some things will be happening this year. Give us your thoughts on the vanadium market, George. Where do you see the price this year? And then do you guys see that the current prices are sufficient for the company to continue to do some work on the vanadium front? And with that, the vanadium samples, those have not been sent out because of the permitting issues. Is that correct? Uh, that's right. That's right. And so, yeah, the vanadium market's, you know, now what, uh, a little under $6 if you look at European and Chinese market for vanadium and it skyrocketed over the last year and a half. You know, we're probably at the low point. It, it goes up a little, it goes down a little bit. But, you know, we see that the market's stabilizing, you know, in, in the, you know, 9 or $10 range. Uh, you know, obviously you've got the, the, the problem with what China is having now, steel production. You know, that's primarily where vanadium is used. But that's going to correct itself. You know, this virus is going to be, you know, control, controlled and contained. Uh, so vanadium will be in demand again. And I think if we can get a stabilized price in that range, then the price can be maintained in that range. It's gone down for various reasons. And part of it was the, the extremely high price and, and the switch of some vanadium to niobium. And, of course, that's a, a commodity that has a fairly stable price. It's not, from what I read, as good in alloying steel as vanadium, but it works. And so rather than paying $27 for vanadium, you can buy niobium at, I don't know, 8 or $10, whatever it is. And you can do almost the same thing. But so, again, I think vanadium is coming back. You know, it's going to go back up to a reasonable price. It probably won't go back up into the 20s. Uh, I think the battery use is slowly coming on. It's not going to drive the demand quickly. So vanadium is going to be stable. But again, if you look at uh, 8 to $10 vanadium, that's pretty good for high-grade vanadium mines. I don't think it's a high enough price to bring on a lot of vanadium production around the world either. So that's the other thing is, you know, you, all these vanadium producers are going to come on when you've got high vanadium prices. They're not going to come on. Nevada's high-cost production. You know, at eight or ten dollars, makes no sense to spend the capital, nor even the transport production cost in, in low-grade vanadium deposits. And ours is, of course, a high-grade vanadium deposit, which also has uranium. So it'd be one of the lowest-cost vanadium producers in the world. And you know, Energy Fuels have got the same thing. I think they they're seeing the same thing. You know, but there's no reason for Energy to turn on and sell at five dollars when they've got a resource that probably can be sold at ten dollars in the fairly near future. Yeah, very well. I appreciate your, your thoughts and comments on that. Now, back to uranium. Have you been in contact with any nuclear utilities? If so, what kind of pricing or time information have they provided in terms of establishing new long-term contracts? Can you update us on that side? Well, I'm in contact with the utilities all the time. I go to the conferences, I talk to them, and primarily the U.S. utilities, you know, are, are, are simply buying uranium. They've got some long-term contracts they're fulfilling. And they're looking at the market, you know, obviously when they should go out for the new contracts. Uh, and Cameco has announced that they've seen an increase in the, you know, contracting. And I don't know what it is, but, you know, Cameco is probably the lead company out there for long-term contracts, especially for U.S. utilities. And so I look at what Cameco is announcing. So I, there's, there's some things going on and maybe it's stepping up, but I haven't seen the utilities step up and say, we'll sign a $60 long-term contract. That's beyond their capability right now. When you got a $25 market, you know, the utility isn't going to sign a $60 contract. But what where they're willing to sign a contract, I don't know. I haven't signed any contracts. But, you know, I, I think the utilities are constantly looking at when and at what level they should buy uranium. But, again, they're under a lot of pressure to keep <clears throat> their uranium fuel cost as low as they can. And so they can buy, apparently they can buy what they need right now at the spot price of 25, somewhere between 24 and 25. So there must be supplies available from somewhere, at least now. And that could change. And if you take a look at a lot of the commenters on this market, they say, you know, the, the supplies are going away fairly quickly. And so the demand is not going to be able to be met. You know, it could cause a spike in the uranium price. Uh, it has before. And so it might again. And, and, you know, the utilities are kind of caught uh, because of the regulators saying, hey, you know, are you paying too much for uranium? 
can't pass it on to this, you know, the consumer. So utilities are, are, are going to pay what they have to to get it, but they're not going to overpay it. So I, that's that's my attitude and my what I get from the utilities. And I, I go along with them. I say that's reasonable. Yeah, I would say that punch bowl at the party is, is starting to run dry. And uh, I think we've got some interesting times coming once uh, the punch bowl runs out. And I think that we've got some issues when that disruption comes. Now, George, I want to just move over to GNA for a moment. Can you speak to the compensation increases to some of the management? Why the increases while the market continues to be difficult and share prices continue to be under pressure? Well, you know, you can see the only one that, you know, they raised my compensation because it was way underneath what the peers are getting, you know. And again, as as my interest in the company, I used to own 50% of the company and work for nothing. Now I own a substantially less share, so I don't work for nothing, okay? And so my compensation went up. Uh, you know, again, I think everything else has stayed the same. But also, you take a look at my responsibility has gone up considerably. Starting mines, when we got our, our permit for explosive permit from the federal government, that permit is in my name. I am responsible for the explosives. You know, so I, I do far more than a CEO uh, of, of an exploration company. You know, I'm, I'm really the one that's over all the mining, even though I've got a mining guy. You know, so I do a lot more. Uh, again, and the board decided that I should have my compensation increased you know, for my additional responsibility. And, you know, whether it's reasonable or not. But, you know, again, you take a look at what other CEOs are making. It's far more on a basis of what they do than what I did. I'm the one that's responsible to Ensha. If something goes wrong at that mine, I, you know, I've got all the responsibilities uh, as, as a CEO. I mean, it's not just the explosive lies. That's just an example. Sure. But since we have such a small staff, I'm the one that has to do it all. I'm the one that visits the mine quite often. And also, I'm the one that's on the road with the investors. <laughs> we don't have an IR guy. I am the IR guy. Speak to that, because what is the, uh, I haven't looked at it recently, but what was the increase and what is your salary now? Uh, I was making 180000 I make 220 Okay. Yes. I had a small award of uh, options and no bonus. Uh, you know, but that's that was my compensation. You know, the options, some people complained, but, you know, the options were primarily granted to our board. The board doesn't make much, and so they thought, well, it's not right to grant options to the board without giving me some options. So, you know, again, the year before, I forego, or I didn't take any options and gave it all to the, the board and to the staff. But the board thought, well, it looks better if you take some options. And it shows, you know, obviously you take an option, it's out of the money. It shows that you're expecting the price to go up. So there's some good things about having options that are above the market <laughs> and, yep. you know, encouraging your management and your board to drive the value of this thing up. You know, I've got right. a number of options. Almost all of them are not in the money. They're, they're not. Yep. So, but again, okay. you know, that's my compensation. It's not a secret. Uh, and again, you know, if, if, if there's somebody that can do this, what I do uh, as well or better than me at a lower price, have at it. I'd be happy to resign and turn it over to somebody else. But, you know, I don't think you can find anybody that, you know, has been in the industry and can do it. It just, you know, sooner or later you might find somebody, but they're just the industry is so thin on management because it's been non-existent in the U.S. But well, I could no, I, probably I, make more money doing something else <laughs> rather than this. But I do own a big chunk of the company that keeps me very much interested and involved. Well, I, I appreciate you addressing that. And it sounds like you just invited uh, applicants to apply. So uh, send George your resume, folks, and uh, they'll take a look at it. Um, <laughs> George, I wanted, wanted one more question on GNA. So as this market drags on and GNA costs are ongoing, how does Western plan to motivate and keep staff in the company? I know it's, I know it's a short staff, but how do you guys plan to do that? <laughs> Well, you know, I think we, the hope that this industry is going to come back is what keeps our staff around. You know, if they thought this industry was dying, they'd probably all go out and find other things to do. But again, I think they all want to be in this industry uh, and, and believe in it. Believe uranium's coming back and there's going to be, you know, a real, you know, future for people that stay in this industry. The young guys that work for the company, uh, yeah, they, they like what they're doing and they like the industry. And so what motivates them is, is primarily, I don't give them a lot of motivation in a way of money. I mean, they get paid, they get paid well, I mean, but they're not overpaid. 
And the motivation is the fact that they want to be in this industry, and I think there's going to be rewards for the people that stay in it if you can last for the next number of years. Uh, and so that's that's the motivation, I think, of the key people in this company. And I, I, they're as motivated now as they were a few years ago, even maybe more so. <laughs> Simply, they see things happening. You know, they they listen to the you know the interviews and they see what everybody's doing and what the federal government and what Trump is doing. I mean, it's positive. You know, from the standpoint, at least it sounds like something's going to happen. <laughs> and so that probably motivates them. So it's not too hard to keep them motivated. It's a little company. It's, you know, it's good working conditions. Uh, we didn't have any problems getting over the contract for getting the miners with 10 or 12 people coming into the mine. Uh, they, they liked it, you know, and it was only a short-term deal with them because we couldn't keep producing ore because we couldn't take it out. But, you know, the, the miners were certainly motivated and did a great job. That's a good part of it. We have no trouble finding and opening mines. And I just talked to the contractor the other day. If we decide to open the mine here in a month, he's ready to go. Miners are ready to go. There's, you know, take a look. Energy fuels just laid off a number of people, which was too bad. But those people, you know, slowly will be absorbed into other industries uh, if, if the mining industry can't find jobs for them. But hopefully they can stay in mining because they like it. Hopefully they can stay in the area. But again, limited jobs in the areas where they laid them off. George, some of our audience wanted to know what you will be doing on the traveling and conference front over the next few months, and will you be doing an interview with Crux Investor in the future? Uh, yes, yes, definitely. Uh, I will be in Toronto for the, the PDAC meeting. Uh, well, there's that in about two weeks, and I will be up there for that. I uh, will be doing a number of interviews up there. Uh, Definitely. You know, I think I've got five interviews scheduled for that during the conference up there, and that's a good time to do it. And then travel after that, obviously. Uh, I'm We're looking at what conferences to go to and what's the best way to spend limited amounts of money on, on you know, investor outreach. You know, that's the thing. You know, we'll use social media like we have and maybe increase that, which I think is good. Uh, so, again, we're, we're looking at our budget for what – and how we we do that and obviously some of the stuff you know going to conferences is always good uh, i was in vancouver in january now toronto in in march and beyond that you know we'll we'll take a look and then certainly something a few, a few things before the summertime when things kind of slow down and we have our annual general meeting we've had it the last two years in new york uh, whether we're going to do it in new york or toronto or somewhere else this year and tie it in with conferences. Uh, we've done that, uh, and that usually happens in June. But again, we'll look at that so that we basically combine several things with, with the travel. Well, George, so with all the matters at Western that are at hand at the moment and the current share price, why should investors be taking a stake in Western today or even adding to existing positions? What would you say to potential investors? Well, you know, if, if you want, you know, if you believe in the uranium industry, whether it's the worldwide industry or the U.S., and this is the time to probably be taking a position because, you know, prices go up and down. But if, if anything good happens, the uranium stocks are going to go up. We saw it, you know, when the boom in the six, you know, 2006, 2007, astronomical valuations for anybody that had anything. And again, we're not there. I think all the uranium stocks are at relatively low levels. And again, investors say, well, I want to, I'll get in at the right time. And, and what's the right time? Nobody knows. But once it starts to move, it's going to move fairly quickly in all the shares. And if, if, in fact, there is a budget to buy that and they start awarding contracts, the shares of ones that can benefit from production are going to go up first. You know, companies that hold resources that can't be put into production quickly are not going to benefit as much. I'm not saying they're not going to go up. But again, you know, uranium is, is one, you've got certain investors and they're, they're risk takers. Mining is risky. You know, investing in mining stocks is risky and especially junior companies that don't have cash flows. And none of us have cash flows, <laughs> uh, at least cash flows that exceed our expenses. So it's, it's risky. And so you're betting on a company that's going to increase in value, maybe because they're an acquisition target. That's what happened in 2006, 7, and 8. Take a look at the, the small companies that were acquired for astronomical valuations, you know, and probably too much, but nonetheless, it happened. 
And I'm not saying that'll happen at that level again, but that's that could happen even before cash flows. You try to consolidate the industry and the values of the companies go up because of the possible of acquisitions and mergers. So again, it's just, you know, you need to pick the companies that seem to have a chance to make a significant amount of money in the next you know, a few years. If you're trying to make money in the next 30 days, then you probably shouldn't be in any of the uranium stocks. How can investors reach out to the company for more information, George? Uh, our website, we, we have that. Uh, I certainly can contact myself anytime. My contact information is on the website. I take calls from investors daily. Uh, so I'd be happy to talk to any investor, any prospective investor at any time. Uh, so if they <clears throat> leave me a uh, email or if a uh, message, I always return either email messages or phone calls. So I'm open to talk to anybody that wants to talk about this. George, and your favorite spirits for this time of year? <laughs> well, I've got several. This this is the winter time, so I drink a little bit more Kentucky uh, bourbon and whiskey in the winter, and a lighter drink gin in the summer. Well, George, I thank you for taking the time to update us on the company. Good luck and looking forward to having you come back later this year. Certainly good talking with you always. Thank you.